Lord, we come to this passage aware that we are frail people, aware that we are in need of guidance and counsel from you, aware that you are our great God and Savior. And so, Lord, today, at this moment, we ask that you would minister to our souls through the preaching of your word. Lord, that you would help us to be teachable, to be moldable, to be shaped, to be like your son, Jesus Christ. And that I, as your messenger this morning, would simply be your mouthpiece to reflect your truth to your people for your glory. Give us strength, Lord, as we listen. And Lord, as I preach, that your will will be done. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've told you on a number of occasions about my pastor by the name of Dr. Paul Vanneman. And um, I told you about the fact that he died in a drowning accident while taking young pastors to uh, the mission field. Uh, and in particular, he was in Costa Rica, and went out into the water um, in the ocean and was taken back by um, uh, the, the waters and he ended up drowning. Um, but as I reflect on that, that whole season, when I heard the news, it was, for me, shocking. Here was a, a, a leader. Here was a, um, a mentor. Here was, here was a man that I looked up to in ministry, and he is now gone. Now, certainly the reality and the legacy of, of, of leaving this world while taking pastors and showing them the mission field and how they can be used on the mission field was a wonderful legacy. Still, the fact that he was no longer with us was a shock. And I remember, because at that time I was in uh, western New York, Buffalo area, and the funeral was in Clarkston, Michigan, and my wife and I were able to go back to uh, Michigan for that funeral. I remember the the church just being jam-packed with people the choir loft was set aside for all those who were pastors who either were affected or challenged or taught by him or were raised up in his ministry. And we had a, a long funeral service, but that funeral service was marked by a number of things. It was a time to honor his life. Um, it was also a time to remember all the things that he had done, sayings that he had, um, the ways in which he preached, the ways he interacted with people, and, and also that resulted in a lot of laughter. And that laughter was healthy. That laughter was right. In fact, he would have definitely laughed himself if he were able to because he would have enjoyed uh, the, the stories and, and, and the memories of the things that had happened. Um, so it was a time to, to laugh, but it was also a time to grieve. And that was all part of the mechanism that, that God was allowing us to go through so that we could properly grieve the loss of someone that had such an impact in our lives. And friends, as we come to our passage today, it is, it is just laced with grief. And it's laced with grieving. And grief is an experience that travels through the myriad of stages and feelings. I mean, you, you go from... from from just total despair to working yourself through a number of different parts of the grief process. 
And if you notice in our, in our uh, text a little bit earlier, when the story came from the Amalekite, um, David with his men and the others immediately wept for the death of Saul and Jonathan and for the soldiers that had died on Mount Gilboa when they were defeated by the Philistines. There was an immediate response. But what we have here is not an immediate response. It is a response that's all part of the process of grieving. Um, Paul Vanneman's son, Todd Vanneman, was my youth pastor, and um, I remember serving with him. And when he was uh, young in ministry, um, his second child, his name was Will, and he, he ended up dying of, uh, of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So there's no, no reason. We don't know exactly what happened. And uh, I remember when, just talking to him, saying, listen, how, how, did, you, how did you handle that? How did, you, how did you deal with that? How did you get through all of that grief and, 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 and sorrow? And he said, Rod, I haven't gotten over the death of my son. I've just learned how to deal with it and not get bitter with God. He said, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about Will. And I try my best to allow my grief and sorrow to push me to serve my Lord and Savior. What he was saying was, what you do with your grief will determine how you are affected by your grief. What you do with your grief will determine how you are affected by your grief. If you allow grief to consume you, then it will consume you and will continue to consume you. And the great privilege that we have as God's children is that we have a God that helps us make sense of our grief. We have a God that we can lean on during that time of grief and sorrow and despair. Now, the reality is, friends, knowing you and shepherding you, I know that many of you have lost loved ones. You've lost parents. You've lost siblings. You've lost friends. You've lost children that are born, and you've lost children that are in the womb. And the secret is that those losses continue to affect us. Those losses are not just kind of brushed aside. They are still present with us and with you. Now, you can be in a place that maybe where your parents used to go and, and, and your, your mind drifts off into a place where uh, you're reminded about your parents and then you begin to, to miss your parents you can be listening to a song and be reminded in that song of a friend who has died. And so your mind drifts away and remembers that friend. I have a pastor friend who sat near me when um, we were at the funeral there for Paul Vanneman. And he was a missionary in Costa Rica. And I've talked to you about him. His name is Steve Henning. And I remember my wife and I going down to visit him for the first time in Costa Rica and, and just building that initial relationship and, and establishing that relationship. But th there was a time when he, he, he changed considerably in his theology. And he was passionate about God. And almost every sentence, he was either mentioning Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon. 
And we actually used to laugh about it. We used to count how many times he would say Jonathan Edwards. You know, it was one of those things. You know, because he just he loved what he was doing. He loved what he was reading. And then God chose to take him home through cancer. And at the age, I believe he was 44, he died. And now every time I pick up a book by Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, or Spurgeon, guess who I think about? I think about Steve. And I, I mourn the loss of a co-laborer in the kingdom working for the glory of God. Oh, there's a sense in which I've gotten over it, but there's a sense in which I have not gotten over it. We continue to grieve, and we remember. We can be at the mall or the park, and we're overcome with sadness. And that is particularly true for you ladies who have lost children in the womb. You remember that child's due date, and you look at the calendar, and you, you see these kids playing, and you, you, you just, in your mind, think about what it would be like if that child had survived. And there's no shame in that, friends. You may look at the calendar, and we're overcome with sadness because that is just a, a time when when maybe a friend or a loved one has passed away. And, and friends, these are just all the realities of, of grief in the life in which we live. And this text helps us sort through some of that grief. And remember, mourning or grieving does not mean lacking trust in God. Grief has been given to us by God as a gift to be able to sort through the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that we are experiencing. Mourning means that life is real, that it's painful, that it involves hardship and suffering. But it must always be fashioned by the comfort that only a sovereign, all-knowing God can give. So it's not surprising that after David's initial mourning that we saw in the last few verses... For the nation, for the king, for the prince, that would be Jonathan, that his grief continues and his mourning is ongoing. And as we come to our text here, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27, it naturally divides into two sections. And it's just really an introduction, and then you actually have David's lamentation, his lament. But for our purposes this morning, we, we want to look at it more through three headings. The disciplines of grief, the legacy of grief, and then the voice of grief, which is where we'll spend most of our time. And so this morning, I, I would like to suggest to you that what we are reading this morning is basically um, a means by which God, if we're willing to listen through David, is teaching us how a sovereign God uses our grief and sorrow to encourage us as well as to strengthen, guide, and motivate, and counsel those who come after us. We'll talk a little bit how that's fleshed out, but, but David, in, in writing this lamentation, is not only working on his own grief, he is also helping those around him to grieve and to remember. And so this morning, let's begin by what I'm calling the discipline of grief. And the process of grief, a follower of Christ, must answer a very simple yet important question. 
I'll give it to you in two different ways. Question is this, will I seek to honor God with my grief? As, as a believer, we don't get a free pass simply because we're grieving. God still wants us to grieve under the umbrella of his guidance and his counsel and his character. So the question could be said this way, will I seek to humble myself under a sovereign God and seek to trust him even when I'm grieving? Sadly for many who have grown up in our feelings-oriented culture, what matters most in grieving is how I feel. And too often, grief can be the beginning of a tailspin of a life that's full of depression and anxiety and anger and bitterness. And, and much of that, if not most of that, friends, is because we're not allowing God to speak into that grief and to give it perspective. But God does not divorce our feelings, our emotions, from our faithfulness. Rather, he seeks to guide our feelings by our faithfulness in turning to and in trusting in him. And that is a faithfulness that is rooted in his faithfulness or his commitment to us and to the gospel. So when we are grieving, we have to, in a sense, fight our way to the place that we're saying, okay, God truly is sovereign. And what is happening in my life right now is part of a bigger picture of what God is seeking to accomplish on this earth. And there's a sense in which I have to fight my way there. Years ago, um, it's been a long time, I went inner tubing. And if you've ever been inner tubing before, you'll relate to this. But you're being pulled around on this lake on an inner tube, and you're holding on to these handles. And as soon as your feet start hitting the water, you start to feel some drag. And the boat's spinning you around, you're going really, really fast, and your, your legs start catching the water more, and it's harder now for you to stay on. And what you have to do is you have to use your strength. You have a choice, either let go of the handles and go, and everyone laugh at you, which is usually the best option if you're on, on the shore watching, right? Um, or or you, you hold on and you say, okay, I'm going to fight through this. And so what you do is you, you, you pull yourself back on the inner tube. You lift your, your feet up. And there's a sense in which God even expects us as believers in, in the midst of our suffering and our grief to say, he wants me to fight my way back to a place where I'm placing myself under his sovereign care where I'm applying his truth to my life now. Now, friends, hear this. The best time to learn and to study the theology of suffering and grief is not when you're going through suffering and grief. It's when you're not going through suffering and grief that you're able to develop that theology and that understanding so that when you do, it's like, okay, now I know what I, I need to apply. So, friends, this is helpful for us. Now notice what David does when he models um, in this text. Look at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. He laments with a lamentation. It seems rather redundant, doesn't it? But this is deeply personal. And it's a lament for two people, for Saul and for Jonathan. 
Now, Jonathan, we understand because of his friendship with David, and it was a deep covenant friendship, but we are still scratching our heads a little bit when he's lamenting for Saul. I mean, he was, he was dodging spears and running away from armies and, and other uh, guys that were sent out by Saul to murder him, and yet he's still mourning the loss and lamenting Saul. Well, friends, what is a lament? A lament is a formal expression of grief or distress that is written out. It's read. It's learned. It's practiced. It's repeated. And so it's a, it's a disciplined tool that someone that is going through grief chooses to use as a vehicle for both their mind and their emotions, it's a means by which they're able to express the grief that they're feeling at that particular moment. And there's a discipline that is necessary in that grief. And this particular lament, the words are carefully chosen, and they're crafted to express the depth of David's sorrow. And friends, this is when our sorrowful grief starts moving toward good grief. It's still grief. But now we're starting to process through it. And this is what David is doing. He's, he's processing through his grief. And it's when we start to live out of our grief and express it in terms that will bring God-centered healing to our struggle with this loss. And so if you're grieving, I would suggest that under the umbrella of seeking to honor God, you can look at David and follow his example and reflect on your grief and God's purposes in it and then express it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be something that is expressed for everyone to see. This is not necessarily something you're going to put on Facebook. But it might be something you write down in your own private journal. It might be something that you share with those that are close to you. Or maybe others who are going through the same grief as you about the same person or the same loss. And you might do it by writing out a poem or putting it in a prayer. Or maybe if, if that's a different dynamic for you, maybe in a drawing. But it's a means by which you are putting down, you are expressing your lament about your loss. And I would also caution us here. There may be some of us here who have not experienced such deep sorrow and grief, and I would encourage us to be sensitive and careful and understanding, to care for those whose grief may not be expressed regularly, but is nonetheless continuously weighing on their hearts. Sometimes, you know, in the conversation over a meal or over coffee or just chit-chatting, it's like you might say, well, you know, so-and-so, they, they, lost, they lost their parents a couple of years ago, and... When are they going to get over that? And, and, and you know, that, that, those can be really harsh words. Insensitive because the reality is you probably don't get over it. You just learn how to deal with it. The question is, how are you dealing with it? And if you're dealing with it in a wrong way, you're going to be affected by your grief in unhealthy ways. They're going to draw you away from worshiping and honoring your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, friends, there's a discipline that is going on here with David in his grief. Secondly, there's a legacy 
of grief, a legacy of grief. There's this writing out of our grief that is a lament, and that is first and foremost a personal and private matter for our grieving purposes, but there now is also a public legacy that this lament brings. Notice what it says in verse 18, and he said, it should be taught to the, apostle, uh, to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So notice, first of all, that this is something that is to be taught. This is what, um, this is what David desires here. The story and the lament about Israel, its king and its prince, should be the part of the fabric of what it means to be a citizen of Israel. That's what David is looking for. The people of Judah hear this. So this is, this is written out then so that every generation will, will remember, that the, every person in Israel should know about the battle of Gilboa, that every daughter should remember and weep for Saul and for Jonathan, that every son or soldier fighting for Israel should look back on this day as a motivation to fight and to fight for Israel and for its glory. The death of Saul and Jonathan, as well as many of the soldiers on Mount Gilboa, was, for lack of a better expression, Israel's 9-11 at that point in time. It had just rippling and staggering effects on those people. And, and David is saying, this is to be remembered. This is to be mourned over. This is to be a motivator. This is to be taught. Secondly, it's to be written. And so it has been recorded, he says, in the book of Jashar. So what he has written, not only is written here in 2 Samuel, it's also written in this other book that we don't have anymore, but the book of Jashar. And it appears to be a collection of early poetry commemorating outstanding events. In Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13, it is also mentioned um, as a place where the story of God um, stopping the sun in the midst of the heaven and didn't hurry, it says, for, the, for the, the whole day. That is recorded not only in the Word of God, but it's also recorded in the book of Jashar. And so, friends, in the day of, of websites and blogs and electronic media and Wikipedia, it's easy to be tuned out to the beauty of the record of history. In fact, one of the reasons that people are more suspicious about the Bible is because they have less desire and care and appreciation for history. And with the internet, as you know on Wikipedia, it can all be edited, right? So you can change the history if you want. That's what's happening in the schools. History's being changed. But David is saying, listen, I want this not only to be taught, but I want this to be written and the reason I want it to be written is because I want the people of Israel to remember Saul and Jonathan, their king and their prince. That's the legacy, friends. And now we move to the, the bulk, the actual lament, the voice of grief that is coming out of the, the heart of David. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. What once was mighty is now fallen. That is the tragedy 
of Israel's grief. Saul, Jonathan, those mighty in battle, they're now fallen. Now, sadly, we often don't appreciate what we have until it's taken away. Oftentimes we like, oh no, no, I wish I had said something. You know, I, I wanted to communicate to this person how much I appreciated them, how much I loved them, and how much impact they had on me, but I just kind of pushed it off and pushed it off, and there was never an opportunity, and I never got to say that. They were once mighty, but they have been slain. They have fallen. So there's actually a second proposition going on here now. There's a second theme to even his lament. And, of course, we find it in the refrain, right? How the mighty have fallen. And so he's saying, remember and don't forget how the mighty have fallen. And this lament flows out in three different stages. Stage number one, he's saying, remember your national disgrace. Remember your national disgrace. The mighty have fallen slain on the high places of Mount Gilboa, and David is expressing a form of denial with his next words. He's expressing a desire for the impossible because it is already happening in Philistia. He's saying, I don't want there to be joy in Gath. I don't want there to be joy in Gilboa. First of all, let's look at Gath. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You see, the Philistine gospel of good news is that Saul is dead. The message has gone to Gath. The message has gone to Ashkelon. These are two cities that are different places in the Philistine territory. Gath is inland. Ashkelon is more on the coast. And basically saying, in the context of that area, I don't want the message of Saul's death to be told. Because what happens when the message of Saul's death and Jonathan's death is proclaimed and told in Gath and Ashkelon? The daughters of the Philistines rejoice. And the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And that brings disgrace on the people of Israel. Now just remember, Gath was the Philistine town where David had spent quite a bit of time. It's actually the home of Goliath, the giant that he killed. It is the city that he went into and he feigned madness to deceive the king and as he was basically escaping from Saul's army. It's also the city where he won the trust later of a Philistine king and that Philistine king ultimately gave him the city of Ziklag himself. So Gath was known to David and the people in Gath knew David and they also knew of Saul, obviously, because Saul was the king of the rival army. But there had always been this elephant in the room question. And even as we went through 1 Samuel, there was this elephant in the room question. It's this. Had David, in escaping from Saul's murderous pursuits and submitting himself to a Philistine king, had he abandoned Israel? Had his allegiances changed? 
And friends, this lament gives clarity that answers that question because for David, the Philistines are the enemy of Israel. And Gath, as well as Ashkelon, are representative towns. And the people in Gath and Ashkelon that are going to rejoice and that are going to exult over the death of Saul is a disgrace to David. He is through and through an Israelite. So to speak of Saul's death in those places would crush his spirit. He could hardly bear to hear the the joyful songs of the Philistine women as their soldiers return from battle victorious. Remember what happened when David would come from fighting the Philistines and he would come with Saul and the ladies would come out in front of the, the big entourage and they would sing a song. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands and they would rejoice and they would celebrate. But that's not happening in Israel this day. That's happening in the land of the Philistines. Saul is dead. Even his son. Israel is defeated. The tables had been turned. And it's an intolerable disgrace that David cannot bear. And so what he's asking for is something that is impossible. But he's expressing what he desires and what he wants to stop. Not only in Gath, but we're told here there should be no joy in Gilboa. This is the place where the mighty have fallen. And in David's grief, he wants there to be no joy produced from the ground of that mountain. He wants, if it could happen, for there to be a curse on that ground. Notice what it says in verse 21. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields of offerings. So no dew, no rain, no fields used for offerings. Now get this. Who controls that territory now? The Philistines do. So who would the offerings be given to? Not Yahweh, but Dagon. Let it not be, he's saying. But there's something else going on here. What happens on a mountain that has suffered as the place where great battles have taken place? The bodies are collected. You know, the crows and the vultures descend. They do their thing. The rains come. Grass grows. The plants continue to grow. The fields are ripe. Life goes on as if nothing happened. And friends, that is part of the struggle of grief. There's a struggle that we experience in our grief when when we look out into a new day and this person that we loved is gone but life is just going on around us as if nothing has happened. You go to the grocery store and people are interested in cabbages and lettuce, carrots, and meat. And in your heart you're thinking, don't they know that I just lost someone? 
You start driving down the freeway and people are cutting you off and they're doing all these different things. And in your heart, you just want to scream in your car, don't they know I just lost someone that I love? And the answer is, no, they probably don't. And they probably really don't care. Because life just goes on. And friends, that's often too hard to bear. And friends, these are difficult times, difficult struggles that David is going through. See, the dew would come to the Mount of Gilboa. The rain would cover its seed. The fields would be prosperous, and life would just go on and go on. So David is crying out for the impossible to take place. But it's an understandable cry. Because of the tragedy that took place on the mountain, because of the disgrace that it brings, David's saying, stop. Don't produce anything. Have no joy. And the reason for that disgrace is now identified in poetic form. Continue on, notice what it says. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Now the expression, the shield, not anointed with oil, can have two meanings. A literal meaning, because shields in that day, don't think of, don't think of you know, the English armor of metal, that kind of thing. Think more of leather on wood, and what they would do with that is they would cover that with oil, so that in battle, even your opponent's weapons would slide off the the shield. There's a literal side to that, but there's also a figurative side to this that I think is really what David is addressing here. That there's something deeper and more significant in this expression. And if you remember, Saul was the Lord's anointed. How was he anointed? With oil on the head. That was the sign of the anointing. But that was a symbol put on him. But when Saul was disobedient, What ultimately happened? When he was anointed, the Spirit of God rushed on him. When Saul was disobedient and would not listen to God and to his counsel, and he would not repent, what happens? God removed the Spirit of God from Saul's life, and we just see him go down into a tailspin. And this is the picture here. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Now Saul is the unanointed king who has rejected God. And friends, that is ultimately a disgrace. If Saul had listened to God, if he had been obedient, here's what 1 Samuel 13, 13 says, and this is, this is what Samuel says, he's speaking for God. We have to believe that God meant this wholeheartedly, even though he's sovereign, even though he's working his plan, This is what Samuel said to Saul. The Lord would have established his kingdom over Israel forever. But you chose not to listen. You chose to be disobedient. You chose to rebel. So Saul's disobedience has been Saul's demise. And now is Israel's disgrace. See, David is is looking back 
And he's, he's, in his heart, he is just pleading through this lament that the celebration of Saul and Jonathan's death would not be proclaimed, would not be forgotten, would not just be something that would be passed by because life goes on. But he was also remembering the significance of Saul's, I'm going to say, failure as king here. It's a very subtle statement, but it is part of the statement here. And yet he's, he's seeking to honor Saul. He's seeking to honor Jonathan in the midst of this lament. That's remembering your national disgrace. Now, he moves on to this next section, remember your national heroes. David looks back and reflects on what had been true about Saul and what had been true about Jonathan. In other words, he's saying to the Israelite people, you need to see what you have lost. First of all, they were warriors undeterred. Look at verse 22, I should say. 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. This is a masterstroke of poetry, because David now turns the expression slain and mighty, which he has used previously to talk about Saul and Jonathan and the men of Israel, he now uses it to talk about their enemies. Both John, Jonathan and Saul had been considerable warriors in battle. But the reality is that Saul's accomplishments after Goliath were overshadowed by David's prowess in battle. Now, Saul certainly had killed his thousands, and David certainly had killed his tens of thousands. Of course, those are exaggerations, but the people of Israel recognized that David was the more skillful in battle, but that doesn't take away anything from the fact that Saul had killed his thousands. He had still been victorious. He had still been a mighty warrior in battle. And then you think about Jonathan. And Jonathan, if you remember, crawled up the rocky crags at Michmash with his armor bearer. And he jumps over the wall. And they together kill the garrison that is in that fort, which results then in a battle that routs the Philistine army. He is also one who is mighty in battle. Saul may have been guilty of rebellion against God, but what David is mourning now is the loss of two great warriors of Israel, and they prove themselves in battle. Now friends, I just want you to think about attending a funeral. And you have an opportunity to give a testimony or a eulogy about this person. We don't typically speak about the person's sinfulness. We don't talk about all the bad things they did. That's not what usually happens in a eulogy. That's not what usually happens when you're passing the mic around, maybe to, to say some words of memory about this person. You'll say, well, you know, this person was really a jerk to me many times. I always had a horrible attitude. I always got angry. You don't, you don't hear that at a funeral. Why? Because you're choosing to do something. You're choosing to remember them in their good times. 
for the good things that this person has done, for the kindness that maybe they showed at a particular location. So you may actually know the reality that this person is not as squeaky clean and rosy and godly maybe as everyone is portraying this person to be, but there's a time and a place. And at that funeral and when the mic is passed around, that's not, that's not a time to talk about this person's sin. This is a time to remember the goodness of that person and things that they have done. So Saul here, yes, he has been a bitter man full of rage against David, but David chooses to remember the glory of Israel here as the undeterred mighty warriors that they were. David can carefully honor Saul as the one who was anointed in this lament. They were undeterred. Secondly, they were undivided. Saul and Jonathan were undivided. Verse 23, And Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And again, at face value, we might have difficulty agreeing with David that Saul and Jonathan were not divided. Jonathan certainly was loyal to David. He was, a, he was loyal in such that he was a covenant friend of David. But Saul made David his enemy. It's quite the triangle, isn't it? And even Saul had at one point been so angry with his son Jonathan that he tried to take his life. But that's not David's point here. Even in his covenant friendship with David, Jonathan had been loyal to his father. Jonathan didn't jump ship from his father's armies and go and serve now with David because David was not yet king. And he was going to be loyal to his father, yet at the same time, he was a covenant friend to David. So Jonathan never abandoned his father. And this is the point. They were leaders who had undivided loyalties. And they were also beloved and lovely. There was a time in the history of Saul's rule when Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the, all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. And when Saul with his army defeated Nahash the Ammonite, the people that were in that city that Saul rescued rejoiced. And when you look at the summary of Saul's kingship in 1 Samuel 14, 47-49, here's what you find written. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he violently struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. That's Saul's legacy. And then the final act of Saul's legacy, the men of Jabesh-Gilead honored their king by rescuing his decapitated body from the walls of Bethshan and gave him a proper burial. See, the mighty have fallen, but the mighty were also beloved and lovely. The people loved them. And their deaths have been a tragic loss for the nation of Israel, and so this lamentation was not a time for pointing out the flaws of Saul 
and his character, but reminding Israel of the valiant warrior that he and his son were. Their loss, friends, is truly great. And so this is certainly a national loss of two national heroes. And then we move into the last section here. What is the tragedy of, that David is ultimately calling Israel to, to mourn over? It certainly is the death of Saul. That's the primary focus. But now in sharp contrast to the daughters of the Philistines who are rejoicing, David calls on the daughters of Israel to weep. Look at verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So David is not exaggerating here. These are not, these are not I want to say, uh, disingenuous words that Saul is using to, to somehow say some things um, about Saul. Saul had brought prosperity to Israel, as we've seen. He, he had clothed the women in scarlet. He had put ornaments of gold on their apparel. And as Israel reflects, their daughters weep. They will remember what they have lost in Saul. He was a successful leader in battle, in conquest, and in spoil. But we also know that the sad reality is that he was not successful in listening to and obeying his God. But again, it is not David's purpose to expose Saul's fault here in this lament. It is to encourage Israel to remember the good things that Saul had done. And that is what David is doing here. He's helping Israel see the way Saul had been good to them and how much of a loss they have experienced by his death. So not only did the daughters weep, but then David is distressed. David truly had been weeping for Saul. It was genuine, it was gracious, it was honest, but now his heart turns away to mourn for Jonathan, his covenant friend. He, he asked the daughters to weep for Saul, but now he must weep for Jonathan. And so in verse 25 it says this, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And, and friends, there, there's something that is being revealed now that, that we would not see until we get to this point. I want you to look at verse 25, and I want you to look also then at verse 19 and see how similar they are and how verse 25 really echoes verse 19. Here's what verse 19 says. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places, how the mighty have fallen. In verse 25 it says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. David now fills in the question that maybe we've been asking, and that is, who is this glory? And David now finishes up this lament by drawing our attention to the fact that David, or so that Jonathan is this person. He is the punchline. This is what David ultimately is getting to. He is lamenting Jonathan, his true friend. So at the beginning of verse 19, and then at the end of verse 19, or sorry, verse, verse um, 25, 
we see how the mighty have fallen. And it's just, it's just reversed in those two different ver- verses. David has cleverly shifted the focus from Saul to his son, Jonathan. Now for the first time in this lament, David speaks in the first person. And he addresses his words to his departed friend, Jonathan. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. What David now says about Jonathan is both personal and because it's in a lament that is put in, the, in this book of Joshua and now also recorded for us in 2 Samuel, it is also public. It is personal in that David is expressing his grief to his loyal friend. It is public in that Israel needed to know of their mutual loyalty and that Jonathan was in favor of David's kingship. He begins by saying, you are my brother. So Jonathan, David's true friend, lies slain on Israel's high places. David's grief, his distress, is for his brother, Jonathan. This is the first time he uses the expression talking about Jonathan and talking about him as his brother. And of course, this is a reference to their covenant friendship, their covenant loyalty. We might refer to them as blood brothers who through their, their covenant together as well as their covenant together before God demonstrated and established their loyalty to one another. And here, there's just really six things. You don't have to write these down, but six things that, that, that came out of that covenant. The covenant was that Jonathan's love for David was expressed. Jonathan, in that covenant, renounced any of his claim to Saul's throne. Jonathan's glad acceptance of David's future reign was included in that covenant. And then David's promise to deal kindly with Jonathan when David was king. And David's promise to deal kindly with Jonathan's family when David was king. And ultimately, the Lord's support of this relationship. And so there's, there's this brotherhood, there's this, there's this mutual Loyalty, and there's this depth of friendship that David is mourning, this loss of Jonathan, the glory of Israel. He also says, you've been very pleasant to me. In the midst of all the turmoil that they had gone through, when David interacts with Jonathan, there's a, there's a kindness, there's a pleasantness. Now, we have to remember, put things in perspective here, David and Jonathan are not the same age. And back when we looked at the story of David and Goliath, we, we, we walked through how Jonathan actually was probably in, in his mid-40s, and then David was more likely in his late teens, coming then facing Goliath. And when David comes to the king, dragging the head of Goliath, you know, as well as the, 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 the shield and, and uh, um, the, his sword, Jonathan is, is ecstatic. Yes, ecstatic at the death of, of, of Goliath, but he is ecstatic because here is a, here's a, a man, a young man with kindred spirits. When you see Jonathan, the text of 1 Samuel, he is just like, I want to go and do the Lord's work in driving out the Philistines. He's eager. He's hungry. He's wanting to get it done. 
And he finds this mutual kindred spirit with David. And right away, Jonathan and David come together. Jonathan welcomes David into the, the family makeup, and he helps him understand the ropes, and they go out to battle together, and Jonathan looked out for David and warned him when his father was out to get him, and ultimately theirs was a true friendship. And yet, at the same time, as we talked about earlier, Jonathan was loyal to his father. But there was a kindness that was going on there, and, and David, of course, is, is missing that. And then it says... Put it this way, there was this loving friendship that was extraordinary. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, friends, hear this. I'm not going to go into great detail here to, to kind of sidetrack us, but there's nothing sexual or sensual that is going on in the statement whatsoever. But those who seek to pursue their own sinful agenda will always find ways to distort God's word and try to make it say things that will support the sin that they want to do. And so they'll come to a passage like this and say, ah, see, this is proof that Jonathan and David were homosexuals. That is not what's going on here. That is not an honest reading of the text. That's ludicrous interpretation. But people will twist it to say what they want to say. Now, what is going on here? What is is the impact of this? David's point is that their man-to-man friendship that they shared because of their covenant to one another before God was a remarkable one. There was a loyalty and a depth in that relationship that surpassed the love of women. It was a different kind of relationship. David was loyal to Jonathan. He could be fully trusted. Jonathan was loyal to David. He could be fully trusted. Do you know what it's like to have a friend, for a a man to have a brother in Christ that he can trust no matter what? That he can come and he can go bleh with all the mess of his life and he knows that person is going to listen, that person's going to love him, that person's going to help him. He's not going to condemn him, but he's going to want to help him pursue Christ. That is a friendship, that is the kind of bond that men need. And if you have ever served in the military, if you've ever been in combat in the military, you know exactly what David is talking about here. There's, there's a bond that is created in battle that will continue throughout life. Because men trust each other. They put their lives in the line for one another. And they weep for the loss of the friends who die in battle. It's a different kind of bond than a marital bond or a bond between a, a man and a woman. And there's a depth that that David here is is mourning and wishing that he still had. Now, friends, I fear that a God-centered love between men is something that is disappearing in our churches. And I think, I'm just saying, this is my observation. These are my musings on that. But I would suggest that much of it is due to the fear of sending the wrong singles. That, that men don't want to be misunderstood in our kind of crazy sexual world. And they don't want to be considered feminine. And they don't want to be considered homosexual. And so they, they maybe don't enter into that kind of relationship that they need to. Friends, to be a godly man means that you're a bold, that you're strong, that you love the Lord, that you're going to take things seriously, and that you're going to be able to talk things out heart to heart. 
And friends, when, when we allow our culture to dictate to us what male-to-male relationships look like, it's going to damage the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ need, needs men. And men who are willing to stand for truth. And men who are willing to live for truth. And men who are willing to protect their families and love their wives. And Jonathan was totally devoted to David's becoming king of Israel. And that meant being willing to give up the crown. That meant submitting to David as the king. And that is exactly what he said to David and Horish. In 1 Samuel 23 and verse 17, Jonathan says to David, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to or second to you. So friends, here's the reality. The more we love, the more we grieve. Our sorrow will be hardest when our love is deepest. And then the theme of this lament is resounded one more time, but now packed with greater meaning. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The mighty Saul, the mighty Jonathan, the weapons of war have perished. They are to be honored. They are to be remembered. They are to be mourned. But another king, chosen and anointed by God, will soon be king, and his name is David. Now, friends, a few things just to to help us wrap up and to see in context and kind of the greater context of Scripture what's going on. This lament has been all about how the mighty have fallen. It's been about the glory or the ornament of Israel slain in Israel's high places. Saul has fallen in death due to his own disobedience and rebellion. And David, although God's anointed king, would also fall. In fact, all human rulers and leaders eventually fall. But there is one who will never, ever fall. And of course, he is the king that we are waiting for. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is the ultimate king that this text is ultimately pointing to. Listen to what Isaiah told us about the character of this Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, the Messiah, is the mighty God who will never fall. And we turn to the New Testament, and and John the Baptist describes Jesus in this way. He says, after me is one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And Jesus goes and teaches in the synagogue, and, and the people in the synagogue are saying to themselves, what did this man Uh, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? These are all descriptions of the mighty God who is the Messiah, who is mightier than John the Baptist here, doing mighty works in that context. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 6, this is what we read, and it's talking about the relationship of Christ and his church. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty 
peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord, the God, the Almighty reigns. See, David is a picture, a helpful picture that ultimately takes us to Christ. But we see in Christ one who is mighty, who will never, ever fall. Now, certainly he hung on a cross and Satan thought that he had won the battle, but the cross was the means to Jesus' exaltation. And here we have Jesus in the end of the age being adored and worshipped by his church as the one who is almighty and who reigns. My friends, let me wrap this up then with just three concluding statements. Hopefully to help you to process this. When it comes to our grief, number one, there's no shame. There's no shame. Weeping, the loss of someone you love is right. Guys, don't let your machismo get in the way of your grief. It's okay to weep in your grief for the loss of someone you love. It is right. In fact, it's, it's not only right, it's God's purpose. It's his way. Secondly, there is no waste in our grief. God works his will through the tragedy of life. And so the counsel that, that I can give you and the counsel that Scripture gives you is in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your tragedy, trust him and his character. Do that first before trying to connect all the dots. Lean on God. Lean on Jesus. Lean on his kindness and his goodness. See your tragedy through, through his lens. And then wait for understanding to come. God may grant it. He may not. But lean on Christ and his character. And then also in your grief, there's no end. Even in grief, tragedy, sorrow, God is still at work. There is still life and purpose. Your, your purpose for existence, your purpose in this world, your purpose even for the church or, 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 for, or for ministry is still ongoing. And I, I remember being back at that funeral for my pastor and being up there in the, in the choir loft and sitting behind the person that was speaking. And there was a challenge that went out to us, and that was this. Allow the death of Paul Vanneman to be the fuel to motivate you to live your lives for Jesus. Because one of the statements he was known for was this. It's very simple. Make your life count for Jesus. Mourn his death, Yes. Laugh about the things that happen in his life. Yes. Remember his sayings. But even more than that, as you see the bigger picture of things, God invested in you through his life. Allow that to motivate you and to move you to serve God with greater vigor. Remember, what you do with your grief will determine how you are affected by your grief. Lord, in, in the context of ministry... In the context of working through your word, your timing is always perfect. And Lord, I know that there are some who are here today who are 
right now connecting with this theme of grief who are themselves struggling with ongoing grief. Lord, it may be full-blown, it may be kind of hidden in the quietness of their heart, and yet they're grieving. And Lord, I ask that the things that have been shared this morning, the, the things, Lord, that, that would help them to, to see your hand and to, to allow you to, to be their God and that your word, Lord, would, would minister to their souls. And Lord, that there would not be a, some kind of a, of a sidetrack that would take us away from you through that grief, but Lord, that by virtue of your, your word and its ministry, Lord, would strengthen us to lean on you and to trust you and to live for you. Lord, I wonder if there are those who are wrestling with the idea of your purposes in their lives. Maybe they're angry at you, Lord. Maybe they're struggling because of the suffering and the, the tragedy that they've experienced. Lord, I, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would minister through your preach word and that God's people and those who are in attendance today that may not know you, Lord, would, would just be affected by your truth and strengthened and fed and encouraged and nurtured, Lord, to, to, to take on new perspective and to take on new trust, Lord, to help them through that process. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for, for David and for his, his discipline in, in writing all this out so that we could learn and we can grow and we could see who you are ultimately through this text. You are our mighty God. May we trust you. In your precious name, amen.